I'm Bertie. And I'm Sam. This is the History Between Bites podcast, the podcast where we talk about your favorite foods and where they come from. Today's episode is all about pizza. We're going to talk about who invented the first proto-pizza, how pizza became a powerhouse in the old world, and how it went from a royal meal to the average college night fuel. Then we're going to sample a few pizza recipes, one from antiquity, and one from the early modern period, and then two from today. So get comfy, grab a snack, and get ready for History Between Bites. Okay, so we should probably tell people that this is almost certainly going to be a two-part episode. Oh, it's going to be a two-part. I haven't gotten to write my section at all. I barely jumped into the research. Nice. So this covers basically as old as I can find up until the 1900s. And all really pre-pizza, because I don't... uh, That's not true. I talk about um, tomatoes at some point and like pizza as we know it today but definitely not what we would consider like an american pizza by any means it's all things that are happening in europe um mostly italy so that's what we'll start with and then we will get to the more modern things and then we'll probably give you the pizza tasting so our intro is a little flawed but it's okay it works we can at least start talking about the taste testing that's true that's true I mean, we're finally at the culmination of all six episodes that we've done, right? So we've chosen pizza, even though it's not like an ingredient, but it's it's all the ingredients that we've worked up to. So, and honey's a little obscure, but honey is in the in the dough. But so we I was have to say that's just how else do you get your yeast to rise if you don't have access to processed sugar? Exactly. So we have honey and olive oil and garlic, tomato, marinara, uh, mozzarella. So of course we're Fucking like in herb blends. Yeah, right. I'm like, so absolutely we're doing pizza at the end of this sort of uh, series, I guess. So to talk about pizza, we have to back way up and talk about like the proto pizza. So pizza as we know it today as a tomato and cheese covered bread would not exist until after 1492, really a bit later, because as we remember from the tomatoes episode, it's a new world fruit. So tomatoes wouldn't have even entered into Italy until... 1492. And again, they went through Cosimo's house. So it was a little bit later than that, early 1500s. So the yeah, pizza I was that say, we it's know. Really, it's really after 1493 when the Spanish redefined atrocity. Yes. Yes. Um, we're definitely going to have to um, give credit to that quote. It's behind from, the bastards, right? Yeah, it was his guest. It wasn't, it wasn't Robert who said it was his guest. And I will have to remember it's like his one Jewish guest, which I- Matt Lee. Yes, it, it was Lee? Matt. Yes, it was Matt. So every time I see him as like one of the things, I'm like, I don't care what the episode is about. I'm I'm listening because he's amazing. Oh, but yeah, so he was great. the one who said, um, you know, he's on the he's on the G Gordon Liddy episodes. Nice. Okay, all six of them thus far. Yeah, yeah. There, it's a lot. Um, it's I just, a lot. I just finished the. This is a side note. I just finished the. Um, oh, the wrestler guy, Vince McMahon. <laughs> Like I don't, I don't watch wrestling. I don't, I know nothing, nearly, nearly nothing. And I was like, this is so fucking mind blowing. But anyways, so hi, Robert. Uh, (laughs) Hi, Robert. We love you. But yes. So as the earliest it could have happened was 1483. We really don't see it entering Cosimo's house. I think it was 15, 16, 15, 19 is, is when tomatoes would arrive. So, but we're going to back way up to a much earlier version of pizza. So if we're defining pizza as a thin bread baked, 
that's topped with different types of toppings then it's a flatbread really we could Which put flatbreads are just pizzas nowadays that don't want to commit to like a sauce exactly or so. they don't want to commit to a tomato it's really the only difference if you take tomato off of a pizza it's a flatbread and then you can kind of do whatever else you want i feel like even if it had all the other quintessential pizza toppings it doesn't have a tomato sauce you don't call it pizza no sauce no cheese left beef <laughs> <laughs> that is nice. oh my god that is 15 years old today like 15 years old this week oh my god i know it was 2007 what the fuck yeah 2007 is 15 Ugh, that's so gross yeah because 2017 plus three 16 years old yeah because i graduated in 2005 yeah yeah it's really oh. it's it's quite disgusting yeah my college students were born after i graduated oh <laughs> yeah they're uh they're all like 2006 2007 I hate them. I hate them so much. Yes. So to begin the story of pizza, we need to back up to 19 BCE with Virgil. And I'm going to take you on a little bit of a tour through ancient Roman history to get to Virgil. So just hang on for what it is that is my nerdness and my love for this time period to contextualize what Virgil is. So Virgil was born Fluvius Virgilus Maro. Um, and he was born on October 15th, 70 BCE. Making Happy him a belated Lib- birthday, friend. All right. And makes him a Libra. I don't know, whatever that means. Uh, <laughs> and He's so balanced, he, like yeah. the universe. <laughs> right. Uh, okay. I can see his work not being so unhinged, but there's a balance. Uh, but anyway, so he was born in Northern Italy, Northern Italy, very close to Gaul. But he would later move south to study in areas like Cremona Mediolanum, Rome, and Naples. I'm going to butcher all these names. Sorry, guys. It's the one I didn't look up how to pronounce. But anyways, uh, so predominantly, like, he's studying in Rome and Naples, which are sort of the highlights of his career, I guess. So he originally has goals to study rhetoric, probably with the idea of being an orator, but later finds a career in poetry. So that seems to work out better for him than it did for Cicero. So good on you. He's the Virgil in... Dante's Inferno, yes. right? Yes, okay. he is the Virgil in Dante's Inferno, which is during the Renaissance. So you start to see in the Renaissance, classical Roman and classical Greek peoples and characters and myth and stories make their way into the very Christianized Europe. So they get filtered through that. So basically, Dante really wants to hang out with Virgil. Because Virgil's amazing, but Virgil is a fucking heretic and he's a heathen because he's a pagan, right? According to So he's to... not allowed in heaven. So he's not allowed in heaven, but he gets to be the tour guide in hell. And he's actually in like the first level of hell, which is actually not so bad. It's just like they were born before Jesus, so they can't accept. And so, but he gets to hang out there with like, you know, every other smart dude that Dante just is really like having sleep orgasms over. So, and a, um, and a lot of Jews, just a lot of Jews. Yeah, but we don't talk about that. Yeah, no, he's not going to mention the Jews are in a good place. Come on, it's medieval Europe. Anyhow, so he would write several of his works under the Augustan rule. And this is the time in Roman history that overlaps overlaps with a shift from the Republic to the Empire. So this is there to kind of contextualize like his perspective and, and what his story is doing. So he would have been alive and perhaps in Rome when Julius Caesar was assassinated, which is 
wildly amazing as a historian, like a history nerd. So, but once Augustus becomes Caesar, he ushers in a time called the Pax Romana or the time of Roman peace. Although they, uh, that really may be a misnomer since Augustus is still waging war abroad and taking lands, but there's no civil war, which means Pax Romana. That it's there was, time of peace. Yeah. So that was one of the kind of lesser known um, names for the Kennedy administration. Oh, JFK nice. was trying to usher about what was colloquially called Camelot because, you know, Britain and America just like. Got it. But like people would also use Pax Americana, usually as like a, a really bad political joke. Okay. But you still hear it kind of bandied about for the 60s and 70s as people as they're waging these wars over in Southeast Asia or, you know, Bay of Pigs with Cuba and all of that and starting yeah. an embargo, they're trying the to build front. this idea yeah. of a peaceful united home front. And that's where the whole idea of Pax Americana came from. That's amazing. I didn't, I didn't know there's a sort of overlap in the ideologies oh. there because oh, no, I don't study like, American history. If you put like the history of the Roman empire and American history, like up against each other and you just, stretch american history so it looks the same like it looks <laughs> yeah. like it's on the same timeline they line up abrupt like aggressively similarly interesting and i'm like fun now now i have to do that um i mean i know that there were things you know because the like our quote democracy is much more related to roman republic than it is the greek democracy i mean so we even call it a republic benjamin franklin was asked you know what is this new sort of government you've given us? And he's like, we painted you a republic if you can keep it. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's very and, clear and, you know, that the founding were... fathers were not stupid about what it was that they were marrying their, yeah, their new world It was very on. intentional. Absolutely. Also, Especially... we're not a theocracy, just so you know, people who want to, like, throw in, you know, religion into our government systems was they not were... supposed to be that. They're deists. They're fucking deists. It's fu- I'm fine. Nearly, nearly, I don't want to say all of them, but a vast majority of founding fathers were not religious in an organized way. They weren't Christian. I'll say that. Alexander Hamilton was only really found in churches regularly after the death of his son. Yeah. Yeah. And that was for like a five year period of his life. And he was there with his, with his wife. Yes. So it was probably that he was there on his own volition rather than being there for his wife. Which he should have been doing since, you know, the whole Reynolds pamphlet business. Uh, you go wherever. You go wherever she wants to go. Yeah. Like, divorce wasn't a thing, but she could still make your life miserable. Oh, yeah. And I mean, what of? Oh, her she father was, sure. Oh, her father was an incredibly powerful politician even then. Even yeah. after he had been, like, voted out by mm-hmm. birth supporters. He was still an incredibly powerful mover and shaker in New York politics. She could have made his life miserable. Absolutely. Instead, it was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Aaron just a, Burr. Just, just, well, yeah, I mean, Aaron, yeah, that's, that's fair. Aaron Burr was probably, you know, it was definitely the nail in the coffin for, <laughs> for Hamilton there. <laughs> um, I'm just, you know, what I'm really excited for is that my daughter watches, like she's, she's seen Hamilton. She likes listening to it in the car every so often, which brings me such joy. But I am so excited for the day that she comes home and is like, Mommy, do you know that George Washington was white? And I'm going to be like, yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. I, I did know that. She's going to be like, no. Because like her first image of the founding fathers are people of color. 
And I love it. Like she's going to have to sort of re-script those images in the opposite direction. And it's going to be so lovely to watch. She's going to be like, that's not right. (laughs) Anyhow, so... (laughs) Augustus ushers in this time of peace, and it really is a uh, a complete shift from what had been, right? The Civil War had been on and off again for a variety of reasons in Rome for some 50 years before the time of Augustus. So with Augustus, not only does it come this sort of Pax Romana, but it comes to changes in Roman ideology and government. So before Augustus, there was a power struggle between the patricians of the Senate and the plebeian class. So patricians are not just, it's kind of, it's always framed as like upper versus lower class. And that's a misunderstanding of what's really happening. So the patrician class are those who, they're often aristocrats, but not always, but they can trace their lineage to one of the original senators of Rome who was uh, placed there by Romulus. So you have this like connection to the original rulers in Italy. You have that line. In fact, patrician means father, right? So again, that their forefathers are the fathers of Rome. They're often upper class, but not always. Or they're aristocratic, but they don't necessarily, they're not necessarily wealthy because they've pissed all their money away doing stupid rich people shit. Now the plebeian class, again, is like the idea of it being like, oh, this is just the poor people. It's an oversimplification. The plebeian class is really just everybody else who can't trace their lineage to one of these original senators. And again, because that's the majority of people, sure, there's a ton of people in a lower class position, but like plebeians could also be very wealthy and really influential because of that wealth. Because if you did not know, a majority of Roman politics is all about bribery who would have thought right that what are, yeah we well, did we maintain did. these traditions yes we did um yeah i mean lobbyists were a thing then too just for different sort of things and it was literally back alley deals all the time so you're like again <laughs> here we are but yeah so this like you know rich versus poor is an oversimplification so you have these people who have this ancestral claim to the senate versus people who don't have that and there is a power struggle between these two classes so the two classes are both vying for power the patricians or the senate as i'll call it even though plebeians can be in the senate but not quite the same way but anyways so the senate like um, house of lords and house of commons exactly so the senate is holding tight to their long control while the plebs are trying to instate reforms, right? They want things to shift. They want power dynamics to change a little bit. They want people to have their interest in the Senate. They want representation. What? Yeah, who would have thought? So one of these reforms that is like massive contention is land reform. And the senators, because a majority of them do have a substantial amount of wealth, they're able to purchase large swaths of land in rural Italian countryside. So there's just a massive amount of land. I mean, Italians like Italy is small in comparison to the United States, but there's, there's just like rolling hills of available land to own. However, plebs made up a large majority of the warrior class or Roman soldiers. Now the soldiers of Rome were not career soldiers. So you don't join the military and like you're just a soldier right like there's no there's no marine type thing right that's not your career 
in many cases, they're just farmers, right? They're the common people. They're people who have other kinds of careers, jobs, you know, middle, lower class type things. But when war breaks out, they're conscripted to fight. And so they get pulled out of their domestic sphere to fight. War's over. They go right back home. And National Guard. Exactly. And so because they're not necessarily, it's not a career, they're not paid in a way that makes sense as like a salary. So a lot of these soldiers are promised land as payment for their service when they return home. Problem arises when that land has been gobbled up by rich senators. So there's a monopoly on who owns the land. The government wants to give some of this land to people who have served to protect the land. And senators are like, nah, bro. So there's these land reforms that are trying to, that the plebeians try to get put in place. So God, again, history I, doesn't repeat itself. That it yeah, sure I know, and I know we're not even we're not even close to pizza yet, but just like hang in. So land reforms become a major point of contention and the basis for the Roman Roman Civil War that plays out between Pompey and Julius Caesar. So it's a long and complicated history. Just know that it's brutal. Everyone's committing bullshit crimes and are all kind of after their own thing. But there within this, before this the issue between Julius Caesar and Pompey, you have these two brothers, who I'm sure you've heard of, the Gracchi, who are plebeian class, they gain power, they come into the Senate, they're like, oorah, we need to change land reforms. And their land reforms for the time are are, uh, really progressive. And you're like, yay, sweet. Uh, This is not so sweet for them. So they- What happens to progressive politicians that are actually effective? Yeah, well, they get labeled enemies of the state and are both- um, killed, right? So one of them is killed by the Senate, and then the other brother, in the process of trying to evade assassination, actually gets killed by his own slave. Which again, we're like, oh, raw, like a slave. It, the slavery in Italy, in Rome, is very different than the chattel slavery we think of. Sure, it still sucks, but it's not quite the same thing. It's and, like indentured servitude. Yes, and the Gracchi, even though they had these slaves. They also advocated for slave reforms to try to make the the situation in which one was in their servitude uh, could have more rights. And so this having been assassinated by his own slave is one of the it's it's a messy sort of like, well, you have a slave, but you want to end slavery or you want to change it. And like, oh, well, maybe they should have been allies with their slaves, but slaves really still um, I, I still you know, like it's a complicated sort of relationship. Yeah. So this is what is the lead up to the rise of Julius Caesar. Lots of, I'm yada yadding over a lot, but he himself is a patrician. Not only is he a patrician, but he can, he traces his ancestry to Venus, like the The goddess, goddess, the goddess. So he's like the patrician's patrician, right? Except for that he advocates for plebeian issues. He wants land reforms. He want he's the liberal. He's the liberal of the Republican Party, basically. So it would be like if Trump's son all of a sudden was like on Bernie Sanders' side. <laughs> I'm just imagining Eric like lumbering his gigantic ass out there and being like, Bernie 2024. Yes. And like yes. everybody is just dead silent as they're trying to process this. Like, but then he wins. Because Julius Caesar wins. I mean, he crosses the Rubicon. He causes a civil war. He fights to the death of things like, you know, and then he takes power. So like, I don't know if it's like, he's not elected. 
per se, right? Um, but anyway, so again, long, hopefully we will be able to dip, deep dive into this at some point because I'm like obsessed if, if you can't tell. But atheist and a Jew. There we yes. go. So after um, Julius Caesar is assassinated, Augustus takes control. Uh, really, I mean, he takes control after the fall of Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Alexandria. There's sort of an interlude between uh, Julius and uh, Augustus's reign. Wasn't Augustus also- like his nephew or something? Yes, he was his nephew, but adopted son. And so he's the one who sort of got that inheritance, if you will, even though Julius Caesar also had children with Cleopatra. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he had a love affair with Cleopatra. He was married to Pompey's daughter. I do believe who he was married to. So now he's cheating on Pompey's daughter, right? The guy that he ends up going to war with. And I'll double check that later. I might have to edit that. But anyway, so he's married to this person's daughter. He's cheating on her with Cleopatra, who is a foreign queen, right? She's Egyptian. She's foreign in the sense that like she's she's a Ptolemaic queen, so she's Greek. She's not Egyptian in the sense like she's not ethnically Egyptian. Mm-hmm. But the Ptolemies have been on in Egypt in Egyptian rule since the fall of the death of Alexander the Great. So for all intents and purposes, she's quite fucking Egyptian. So he has a love affair with her, has a kid with her, then dips to go, you know, do his side quest in Gaul and try to become a the you know, the fucking leader of the Senate again, that falls through, blah, 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 so, civil war, he gains power, he's assassinated. Now you have Augustus. So during the interlude, Augustus is trying to make sure, like, he's trying to quell the audience, like, right, all of Rome to be like, okay, can we stop fighting? Like, I know that my daddy's dead, but like, can we chill and try to whew, for a minute? And Mark Antony, who was Julius Caesar's, like, right-hand man, another reference to Hamilton, apparently, um, is like, no, fuck no. Like, you don't get to be the leader. I am the one who've been doing all of the work for the last how many years? I get to be this. So I, in put, an, I did the job. I picked up the pin. Yeah. So <laughs> in an attempt to gain control of Rome, he goes to Egypt to side with Cleopatra because she has a bomb-ass army. And so he's like, how do you win a war? Yeah, fucking bring in people, right? And so for a long time, her ships are just like her navy and her army just fucking is blasting Rome. And Mark Antony looks like he's going to win, whatever. But of course, he's hanging out with Cleopatra and she's, you know, banging. So they hook up. They have like three kids together before. So it's quite some time um, before the Battle of Alexandria when Rome uh, and Augustus's naval army goes into egypt and it's there they've clearly lost so instead of being held captive and paraded through the streets naked and then you know held in prisons and or sent off to be um slaves because it's horribly inhumane to do to anybody well and that's what would happen to the leaders of of conquered lands in rome like there was a uh, rome's all about the show right and so they would have parades every time a military group would come back from war and so you would start with like the general or caesar whoever at the front in his purple robes right being like haha look at me i'm back and then you would have all of the soldiers in like rank and file behind him march through the city and people cheering then you would have like all of the stuffs like the booty right that you get then you get the people that they've captured the slaves and at the very end of it like it's fucking santa claus at the macy's day fucking parade is the leader who was conquered 
is stripped and shackled and paraded through the streets, Cersei style, so that they can scream shame at this bitch. Oh my God. She wasn't having it. And so her and Mark Antony commit suicide together. And then Augustus takes control. You're also, there we go. You were frozen for a second. You were too. I was just kind of waiting it out to see if it would figure itself out. So Augustus takes control. And to do this, he must appease both the Senate and the plebs, right? Because that rivalry is still there. So to do this, he reinstates senatorial power. However, it's much more restricted than it than even at Julius's time. So he re, he like reestablishes the republic, but in all reality, it has now become an empire because Julius Caesar has all, or sorry, Augustus has all the power, and the Senate is kind of there as like, well, you still exist, you still have influence, you still make stuff happen. All the processes are still there, but like the Caesar still has much more power over any decision that the Senate makes. So again, you have this shift. So now, wait, instead of establishing a like proxy, like a figurehead, mm-hmm. he establishes a figure Senate. Yes. Like he makes the rules, but it looks like, and they probably presume uh-huh. that they're actually making those choices. Mm-hmm. That's fucking amazing. So very few people up until... I mean, Nero, it's pretty clear that it's a, it's an empire. But up until those, I mean, Nero's really kind of the person right after Augustus, if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, during Augustus's reign, people in that time period would not necessarily say they live in, in an empire. They would say they still live in a, a Roman Republic. So it's uh, wishy-washy. But one of the ways that he does this, so he's appealing to both. He's trying to save face with the power dynamics. He's trying not to just be a fucking dictator because that's what got his dad shanked 37 fucking times. Um, so he Sounds starts many times by your friends. Right. Um, at two Brutus. Um, <laughs> so he starts to um, create these illusions of power and he starts using rhetoric to um, vilify the Senate, right? To put power back into the Senate. He keeps saying that he turns down these titles that would give him, you know, um, you know, all the power, blah, blah, blah. And then he starts to reestablish traditional values. So a lot of it, a lot of his rhetoric becomes like, you know, make Rome great again. Uh, But it it becomes this like, go back to tradition. The Senate has the power. Like, I'm just here as like the leader person, but I'm like only one of few, blah, 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 whatever. And so a lot of those things that make it look like going back to tradition is he starts building temples and he starts procuring land in war again. And that land, instead of being able to be sort of purchased by wealthy senators, gets given to soldiers. So you see sort of um, the twofold thing, right? Everybody gets kind of happy with Augustus because everybody seems to think that they have the power and that they're winning. When in reality, Augustus knows exactly what he's doing. And if you want to know more about the ways in which he thought about himself you can read his like deathbed life story it's his rest guest day so it's called his things done and um it was put on his temple so it's definitely meant to be read but that's where he lays out all of these things it's where he talks about building temples and giving you know uh, social works and public work campaigns to lower classes yada 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 whatever so he's like I i made everybody feel like they were in power 
And he repeatedly says, I didn't take these titles. Like, oh, the Senate wanted to give me dictatorial power. I said, no. The Senate wanted to make me this. I said, no. The Senate gave me the ability to be these things. I said, no. So it's this. And like, in all reality, he has all the power. So he's kind of making shit up, not making it up, but outwardly he's saying, right, I didn't overstep the bounds of my position like my predecessor did. However, I also can listen to the little guy and we can make everybody happy. That fault goes to shit with the next guy. Nero's the next guy and Nero's a fucking tyrant, but I digress. So why do I talk about all of this just to get to pizza, right? We're like how many minutes in and we literally have like not talked about pizza. So this is all to say that this is the time in which Virgil is writing and most notably writing one of his most famous epic poems, the Aeneid. So the Aeneid was one commissioned by Augustus. So like know that that's part of like he's paying for it to be written so that a lot of the perspective and the values that are in the Aeneid are from Augustus, right? The things in which he wants to tell Rome that they are. And a lot of the Aeneid is really, it's the origin story of Rome, right? You have Aeneas who is escaping the Trojan War and he goes on this obscure ridiculous fucking journey and at the end of it he settles in italy and establishes rome sort of he settles in italy that would later become established with rome through remus and romulus and fucking drinking the the wolf pack yada 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 um but yeah so again the story is deliberate to sort of talk about the the reason in which they are the people of this land makes sense cool so at some point in this tale, Aeneas comes to meet the queen of the harpies, whose name is Kaleno, if I am pronouncing that right. Latin, nobody knows how to pronounce it right. So, yeah. But anyway, so he meets the queen of the harpies, who tells him this. She says, Italy is the land you seek. You call on the winds to sweep you to, there by sea. To Italy you will go. Permitted to interpoint, sorry, interport but never granted a city girded round by ramparts. Now before some terrible hunger and your attack on us, outrageous slaughter, drive you to gnaw your platters with your teeth. This is a lot of yada yada and is a really meh sort of translation. But this is essentially saying that Aeneas is going, him and his men are going to be sailing around, lurking for a fucking place to stop. And they're never really going to be allowed into the regions. They're finally going to find their space into a region, but it's going to be at a point when they are so over it, they're so hungry that they will resort to eating their own tables. So this is how we get the first pizza. When Aeneas enters Italy, him and his men are indeed nearly starving to death and they make a flatbread and they top it with simple provisional foods. And it says, and once they devoured all in sight, so the stuff on top of their flatbread, Still Mm. not sated, their hunger drove them on to attack the fateful plates themselves, their hands and teeth defiling, ripping into the thin, dry crust, never sparing a crumb of the flatbread, scored and quartered. So That's pizza. Yeah, so this, yeah, so like, right, this is when Aeneas realizes that the prophecy has become true, that it's not literally he's going to eat his table, right, like something out of wood, But he eats his table because that's what the food was served on, right? It's the platter in which his food was served on. So when he eats the bread, he's like, oh, shit, we just ate our platters. (laughs) We just ate our tables. 
Yeah. And so Aeneas really does invent the very first proto pizza. And really, is it Aeneas or is it, it's not Virgil, right? It's a tribute to Aeneas. But again, this type of flatbread is definitely indicative of the region. So there's a long history of having find finding things that um, have similar compositions um, and similar sort of rhetoric to there's some in Persia, there's some in other regions of the Mediterranean. There's a flatbread matzah, right, if you will. In, in the from, Semitic peoples, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then also you have like Egyptian flatbread. But in China. China have flatbreads as well. Yes. But this like very early, very specific reference is something that is not necessarily as easily as easy to get a hold on, basically, with the research <laughs> is what I'm getting at. And because we're leading into pizza, we're sticking with sort of the Italian peninsula. Yeah, makes sense. So the first use of the word pizza was documented in a source from 997 CE from Gita, which is just north of wait for it, Naples. Surprise. <laughs> so again, this is, you know, almost a, just under a thousand years after Virgil's Aeneid. So this is, this is a long time later, but the first time the word pizza is used is in this, um, that we have is in this document. And so this document is from a feudal Lord who promises pizza to a Bishop as a yearly tribute. So pizza becomes like payment for the which means monastic which means that it's, culture. It means it exists in some way, and like the only reason we have this document, like this document at this time, is because it survived for some reason. Yeah, exactly. but that's it's clearly in the common usage if they're putting it in this kind of document, talking yes. to fucking monks. Yes, yeah, and yeah, like there's clearly a tradition of flatbread pizza consumption yeah before this 997 moment uh and so the word pizza has two possible origins and apparently has um perplexed etymologists and historians and they fight over where the word pizza comes from but based on the etymology the vocabulario etymologico del lingua italiano which is an etymology dictionary based and published in Rome in 1907, reveals that pizza comes from the dialect pinza, which is from the land from the Latin word pincere, which means to pound or stomp. In my opinion, the much more fun uh, understanding of where the word comes from is that it's related to the Lombardic word. So Lombardic is a Germanic language, is related to their word for bizo or piso, which means mouthful and is related to the English word for bite. I love I, that. I like that one better. Like you kind of. You either get, you either get like pounded out or I, munch. I like munch, but that's I like munch because I'm an SVU fan. <laughs> but anyways, that's anyways. fair. Um, but yeah, so I, I like the idea that the, the word pizza comes from the word for bite. I, I think it just, no, no, it's fun. It's, it's a fun connection. It means so. that ultimately nom and pizza have the same <laughs> root word nom 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 and pizza <laughs> same root yep yep uh so it's not until the 18th century that we start to see references to what we would consider the modern pizza complete with tomatoes so the pieces that we've been talking about before this does not have tomatoes on this so the pizza that was eaten in uh by Aeneas would have probably had olive oil maybe some cheese 
definitely vegetables, definitely an assortment of proteins, but no tomatoes. And then even still here with the pizza for the monks would have been olive oil, cheese, probably not mozzarella at this time, and some herbs, maybe vegetables, maybe some fish as well. But again, not the... Uh, depends on depends on when, uh, yeah. what time of year, and like if it was during Lenten season yeah, or exactly. whatnot. Yeah, but definitely not quite what we like. We're, we're not at Domino's yet, right? So again, another, so that was the first century CE. So now we get to the 18th. So it's quite a fucking while that we get what we would consider pizza today. You know, we, we already talked that it wouldn't have been until the late 15th century that tomatoes on pizzas were even possible in Europe. So it's no surprise um, that with all the skepticism, unfamiliarity, and of course, Gallen's destructive ideology concerning the tomato, that it would take an additional 200 years for pizza to become popular. And I one don't earth- like it. It's icky. <laughs> right? It's too cold. It's too wet. Um, it's too feminine. Yeah. I think maybe Gallen was gay. Anyways. Or just hated women. You don't have to be gay to hate women. This is true. There's so many straight women, straight men who hate women. Yeah. They're, they're heterosexual. They don't love women. Yes. They save all their love for other men. Yes. And they put yeah. all women in the fuck zone. Yeah. I want to have a whole conversation about the fuck zone versus the friend zone. Atheist and a Jew. That's like just hint at conversations yet to come because I think that this is, again, fucking mind opening to to look at heteronormative issues with that. But anyhow, so one early source uh, that was written by none other than Alexander Dumas, the author of The Three Musketeers. Uh, said that the Neapolitan poor ate nothing but watermelon in the summer and pizza in the winter. This, of course, is probably a slight oversimplification of the truth, but tomatoes and bread were certainly staples in the poor's diet, and pizza was cheap to make and was probably eaten multiple times a day. It was easy on the go, and because it had vegetables and fish, it was relatively nutritious. So, again, he's kind of, it's an oversimplification, but probably not not by much not completely wrong so now naples at the time was one of the poorest and most crowded cities in europe and the pizza that dumas talks of probably did not contain mozzarella on it yet now we get to my favorite book of all times right 10 tomatoes that changed the world and he makes note that not all of people not all the people were fans of pizza in fact Two scathing reviews of the beloved late night food is from Carlo Collodi, the author of Pinocchio, and Samuel Morse, the inventor of the telegraph. So high profile people, I suppose. So Collodi. Collodi writes in this whole like morality piece in this fucking cricket, though. (laughs) And the first thing he has Pinocchio do in the book is smash the cricket. Really? He kills Jiminy Cricket and like. The first three paragraphs. Oh my God. I only know the fucking Disney version. This is wild. Also, he is 100% plagiarizing Livy in the whole scene with the donkeys. Like that's the entire story of the golden ass is that they get turned into donkey. He gets turned into a donkey and he needs a savior figure, Isis, to turn him back. He needs to be redeemed and to shed sin to get back to human form. Like that's literally like the interlude of Pinocchio. That's really fucking boring for kids, but I digress. So this, this person, Colodi, he writes of pizza. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever read. 
is a patchwork of greasy filth that harmonizes perfectly with the appearance of the person selling it. <laughs> oh, the the stoner that's not paid enough is a yeah. long-standing tradition. Yeah. <laughs> so this is not completely surprising, like his review, as the first pizza Yolos were, that sounds so American, were often served from storefronts or food carts and were shuffled around by street urchins who were barefoot, filthy, and in rags. Which means, though, that pizza began as a takeout delivery food. Ah! Yes. It. Yes. So Morse wrote of pizza in 1831 that it's a species of the most nauseating cake covered with slices of tomatoes and sprinkled with small bits of fish and black pepper. I know not what other ingredients. It altogether looks like a piece of bread that has been taken reeking from the sewer. He said it looks like shit. It looks like bread that's covered in shit from the sewer. <laughs> Sir, what kind of shits are you having? That look like pizza. <laughs> they look like tomato sauce and black pepper or just tomato slices, black pepper and fish. Yep. Go to a doctor. Yep, yep, yep. Now, this Pro tip podcast listener, if you're shitting anything that looks like <laughs> tomato slices, red and watery and mucosal, please go to a doctor. Yes. That's that not is, normal. That, that is not a time for WebMD. That is time for a doctor's appointment. <laughs> it's time for urgent care. If it's yeah. been, like May, if maybe an ER visit. Just depends. It just yeah. like so now, now pizza goes on a wild little ride here. So one of the biggest issues with pizza in the early 19th century was not the pizza itself, even though people were a little weird about the fact that it's literally being given to you from street urgent hands, but mm -hmm. rather the fact that pizza was being made in Naples. So as previously mentioned, Naples is one of the largest and dirtiest cities in Europe. Even It even outpaced London sevenfold, sevenfold in terms of density. So it's cram packed to the brim of poor people really. this is the 18th century 19th century early 19. 1800s so this would have been around the same time as the great stink in london yes naples and is naples stinkier. oh yeah not only is it stinkier but because of this overcrowding lack of sanitation and the overflow of indigent populations naples was known for cholera as much as it was known for pizza so cholera is a particularly nasty little disease it's caused by a bacteria and it's usually spread through water and food. It can kill as quickly as a few hours. It usually takes a little bit longer. Symptoms include chills, intense thirst, difficulty breathing, severe abdominal pain, and excruciating muscle spasms. All of this leads up to what's typical cause of death, shock. And all of this happens with the victim fully conscious the entire time. So it's just cholera is horrifying, horrendous and disgusting. And it said like there was a document that said that as soon as you got it, people would like fall down and all of a sudden all of the color in their face, like all of their pallor would just be completely gone. They're like you basically just turned into a living dead in a matter of minutes and then you were in excruciating pain and then you died. On one of our episodes, we are going to end up talking about Jon Snow and Semmelweis and the cholera outbreak. That led to modern epidemiological practices. Jon Snow? Jon Snow is the father of epidemiology. Oh, that's not the Jon Snow I was thinking of. Yeah, you were thinking you know nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah, I was like, how, I, well, clearly I know nothing. I was like, what does Jon Snow have to do with cholera? This is amazing. What kind of literary analysis am I going to get from Bird? <laughs> he took, 
he took the the hand pump off of a local water source for like this one set of streets and stopped a cholera outbreak in its tracks because he'd been telling the city for like weeks the color is in the fucking water this is not miasmic get to smell it yeah you don't you don't have to smell it you need to ingest it and they're getting it through the water and london officials were doing what london officials do best government officials do best yeah. and dragging their feet and being like no no i don't think you're right we're gonna launch an inquiry like it's gonna take like six months and he's like you, you mean like what they did with the black death yes yeah uh-huh. so, so he don't need to wash your hands that's the most preposterous thing i've ever heard just go to a place that there's more air and there's civil vice we'll get there he takes the pump off in the middle of the night he just is like no more no more public water access for you guys nice just takes the shit off and throws it in the Thames. So they can't even, like, replace it in a timely manner. So So he cuts off public access to water. He cuts off the public's access to water in just this one spot for these, like, two or three streets. Okay. And the cholera outbreak ends overnight. There are no more new cases for, like, three weeks after this. That's amazing. None. And they're like, "How how did that happen? And then somebody's like, we haven't had our water pump active in three weeks. We've had to go to the neighboring neighborhood and use theirs, which wasn't having the outbreak because mm-hmm. of how the like sewage was flowing. Which Weird also... that if you drink your own shit, it makes you sick. What? How so strange. strange. So strange. <laughs> so cholera was such an issue in Naples that it is estimated that over 32,000 cases of cholera were um, estimated in the city of Naples by July of 1837. So this is like not even all the way through it. And some nine over 19,000 people were estimated to have died among the city's then 360,000 people. This amounted for a cholera specific mortality rate of 54.5 out of a thousand. Holy shit. Yeah. It was wildly rampant. That's five and a half percent of the population. Yeah. Yeah. So Cholera was such a problem that it warranted a visit from the Italian king, Umberto I. So he comes and visits. And this visit is like, it's kind of talked about in terms of like his visit during the cholera epidemic and being willing to talk to people in hospitals with cholera and like touch people is the same as like when Princess Diana, like hugged someone. I was about to say that. Yeah. Yeah. Like Like, this is. Yeah, this is on that same level, like it's brave, it's there's chutzpah, but also like huge PR fucking dream because then he's hailed as this like amazing king because of this visit. But anyhow, so he visits Naples and he is appalled by the conditions of the Neapolitan poor. He notes the lack of the sanitary system and that it's so bad that there's barely a distinguishing characteristic of the drinking water and wastewater. So even with what's there for sanitation, they're not really being great about the water. So he also goes to hospitals again. He meets with cholera victims. And this leads him to the famous line that says, Naples must be disemboweled. So this is the idea that the city's center and the poorest district needs to be leveled out and rebuilt because the ways in which people are living is just gross. You got to literally scoop out the inside rebuild it with better conditions, more airy areas, clean up the the water, all the things. So he begins this, you know, this process. But while he is 
on his visit, he brought with him his wife. And during their stay, she becomes really tired of the really heavy French cuisine that she's getting at the palace. And she wants to try local cuisine, regardless of the fact that cholera exists. So she calls a local pizza maker named Rafael Esposito to the palace of Capodimonte and asks him to make pizza. So, you know, allegedly it's like, here, I got better ingredients and whatever the fuck they're eating in the gross areas. Make a pizza for me. So he makes three pizzas one of which has olive oil, cheese, and basil. The second yeah. one is that, but has anchovies. And then the third is tomatoes, mozzarella, and basil. And this he tells her that he made because it has the red, white, and green of the newly established Italian flag. And the queen, this of course is like half truth and possibly a little bit of legend built into this, but anyhow. So it's probably the, a little apocryphal, but that's fine. Yeah, and I think it's just this, like how much she loved the the red, white, and green pizza um, is probably upplayed a little bit because we do have a document from her sort of head person in charge of the palace who was like, hey, thank you for coming and giving the pizzas. The queen enjoyed them all, blah, blah, blah. Anyhow, so allegedly the queen said that her favorite pizza was the last one that Esposito made and thus the margarita pizza was born. Because he named the pizza after the queen. So this is like the inception date of the margarita pizza. And really like the pizza that we think of as Neapolitan pizza, right? Very simple ingredients, not a whole lot of zhuzh, right? Tomatoes, mozzarella, basil, Basil. that's it. Um, And really the tomato sauce uh, that's used now is not cooked, right? So it has a very um, wet sort of pizza consistency to it <laughs> just went like this because that apparently means <laughs> what <laughs> sloppy wet. so wet. <laughs> this is the end of the script but i want to talk about this for a second because this is a bit more in the realm of modern but still is very um neapolitan so people have gone to naples to eat neapolitan pizza for you know, since really since, you know, things got cleaned up. Right. And especially post-World War II, like Naples is known for being the home of the pizza. And if you want the best original pizza in the world, you go to Naples. So there is this uh, critic who comes to Naples to try the best pizza in the world. Now, first off, his first problem is that he's a New Yorker. So he has a very specific notion of what good pizza is. And he goes to Naples. Now, Naples is not like New York pizza in the slightest in that, like, right, the sauce is not cooked. So it's a much more wet pizza. You Mm -hmm. have, like, globs of mozzarella as opposed to, like, an even distribution. And And they would have had, like, buffalo mozzarella. Yes. And so his review of this pizza, first off, he's like, I tried 15 different pizzas and I'm going to tell you, I'm going to rank them and tell you what the best is. First off, he's unsatisfied with pizza because it's not what he expects. And two, he says there's no variation. Every single place has the same pizza. So it's equally the best and worst pizza in, in Naples. Good luck. Enjoy your trip. So that's completely unhelpful. It's very unhelpful. So but it speaks to the tradition of pizza in Naples. So 
you're going to love this so much. I am so glad I didn't put it in the script because I get like just raw reactions. So, uh, oh, Levine, dear. Levine is the, the last name. Um, so he's a food writer and serious eats founder, Ed Levine. That's this person who's going. So, gotcha. right. Levine was raised in New York, which, uh, and then it says, you know, tempt, he's tempting to dismiss America's last luster review of Neapolitan pizza. And then of course he has a very lackluster review of neapolitan pizza this traditional pizza i'm reading now from 10 uh, tomatoes to change the world so this traditional pizza that each pizziolo is trying to outdo the others with must concert like must conform to the standards of what the consortium are you fucking kidding me no so he says the traditional pizza uh that each one is trying to outdo the other must conform with the sets of standards that make those of the DOP San Marzano tomatoes seem outright lax. <laughs> I love your face right now. So <laughs> everything, including the chemical compounds or chemical properties of the flour, meaning the protein and ash content, moisture absorption rate, and more, the types of yeast, only brewers, the types of tomatoes, either a San Marzano or Roma, the cheese, buffalo or cow's milk, mozzarella, the temperatures of the oven, 800 to 900 degrees Fahrenheit, wood burning only, um, how the sauce is spooned on. It has to use a spiraling motion from the center outward and even how the finished product must be eaten on site, hot enough to separate the epidermis from the roof of your mouth <laughs> is laid out in the most comical details. This is the most controlling thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yes. Like there are so many good reasons to have like a set standard for like, these are the ingredients you use and this is how you cook it. Like wood fire, temperature, fine, whatever. These are the ingredients you use. Basil, tomatoes grown in this region, particular types of mozzarella, fine. The way that you serp you have if you don't put the sauce on from the center spiraling outward it doesn't it, count it doesn't count it's not up to standards and would not receive this avpn uh certification which basically it is naples authentication of pizza so because of this it does one of two things one is not great and the other is like great if you are a big old nerd go ahead what does it mean avpn means literally the True Neapolitan Pizza Association, because it's Associanze Verace Pizza Napolitana, AVPN. The True Neapolitan Pizza Association. Nerds. <laughs> pizza nerds. Pizza nerds. So again, pizza this is... HOA. <laughs> I mean, it's worse. It's pizza DOP. <laughs> yes, but they're acting like an HOA with they are. It has they to are. be in a particular spiral and it has to HOA be served in a certain temperature. Existence. Yeah. So this does one of two things, or yeah, one of two things, right? The great thing about this is that you get a continuity to Neapolitan pizza that theoretically could exist from that same 18th century, sorry, 19th century pizza that Queen Margarita had. You're like, wow, that's fucking awesome. And if you're like us and you want to, you know, yeah, history between bites and taste historical pizzas, this that's that's a great thing and you can actually be like wow the people who were eating this 200 years ago this is what this tasted like however it does not allow for any creativity because of the restrictions so the fact that this 
you know, Ed Levine goes into Naples and is like, they all taste the fucking same. Well, of course they do because they're held to a particular standard and there's no deviation of it. So, which is a friend of mine is currently stationed in Italy. Hi, mm-hmm. Taylor. And he's mentioned that multiple times with Italian cuisine is that there's not really a ton of creativity mm-hmm. because you're like, this is how you cook food. This is, this is the standard. Yeah. So he's like, the food is really good. It's really tasty. However. Yeah. You are, get over it. Yeah. Things are, things are done a very particular way. Well, and I'm thinking that the answer to that problem with French cuisine is applying technique versus ingredient lists. Yeah. Where like French, like French cuisine isn't about like, oh, here are the staple things that you cook with. This is how you make it. This is like these sorts of things. It's like, you can make whatever the fuck you want, but you're going to use the techniques of this cuisine to do so. And it allows for some creativity in places where like Italy maybe is not quite the case because you have sort of those like staple pantry ingredients and then the proper ways in which to. Well, uh, hearing about how they like, how they micromanage even the method of like creating this pizza no wonder there's no room for creativity. Yeah. Although I heard I heard a really hot take and I don't I don't agree with it, but I don't disagree with it. So it was on another podcast that I was listening to. I think it was ne- Necronomapod and they were doing they, they always do like you know, they don't always, but sometimes they will start the episodes with like a Mary Fuck Kill thing. And they did it with different like types of cuisine. And the hot take was that Mexican food is all the same food just arranged in a different order so it all tastes the same they're like meat cheese lettuce some sort of corn tomato like uh tortilla rice beans like just rearrange that in 17 different ways and you got yourself mexican food no matter what and it all tastes the same now i live in southern california and i love me some fucking taco shops so i fundamentally disagree with this statement but i get it i think that that can also be overlapped with italian cuisine cuz you're like it's all the same. It's just an assortment of different kinds of pasta, an assortment of different kinds of sauces, and you just put them together, maybe with vegetables, maybe with a protein. I just have to sit with that for a second. Just have to sit with myself for a second. Italian food is the Taco Bell of the world. Oh my God. No, it's... Because Taco Bell is just the same ingredients. Like I will, I love Taco Bell. Taco Bell is 100% the same ingredients, just rearranged in different ways. It all fucking tastes the same. Which is delicious. But all Italian food doesn't taste the same. That's true. It has like it has like six different tastes per region. Yeah. It bean based, steak based, ground beef, chicken. Does it or does it not have nacho cheese? Those are your flavors. (laughs) Do you have capers and lemon and fish? Capers and lemon and chicken? Tomato and sausage or tomato and beef? And does it or does it not contain vodka? And nobody in Italy is making a cream sauce. So go fuck yourself with like, well, there's there's Alfredo. There's not. Not in Italy. There is not. Yeah, it's the Taco Bell of the world. And I love it. <laughs> and might be the most problematic thing to say since anybody said anything in America about Mussolini. I might get Italian hate for this statement. You didn't no, you didn't advocate for cooking spaghetti in milk. So I no, think you're what okay. The fuck no. No. Also, also, whatever, whatever American states cuisine is to put chili on top of spaghetti pasta is a fucking abomination. So Skyline chili. It's Ohio. Yeah. Okay. Well, Ohio, go fuck yourself. I have redeemed myself with my Italian audience. 
I love it. And my, I have two friends who are in Ohio right now. And what, my work wife is like just outside of Ohio. So hi. Oh, Ohio is not for lovers. Ohio is for haters. Yes. Although she did find like love in Ohio. So I don't know, maybe it's not, but anyhow, Ohio may be for lovers, but it's definitely not for people who like food because they eat chili on top of spaghetti and that's their like state thing. Anyways, I digress. So it says, what exactly is the Neapolitan pizza? Let me describe for you what a Neapolitan pizza is. It's this sacred relic that the city's pizza fathers are working so hard to preserve, right? So what is this thing? It says, it is what we might call an individual artisan pizza, the size of a dinner plate with a tall airy rim that tapers to a wafer thin, no more than one tenth inch, because that too is a thing, wet center. The sauce is simply crushed or pureed canned tomatoes topped with parsonymous scattering of mozzarella chunks, three or four basil leaves, and a swirl of olive oil. The finished project, product resembles a Red Sea punctuated with scattered white islands of cheese around which sailboats of green basil. I can't get over that wet is a feature, not a bug. It's a feature. In a, in a pizza. It's a feature. The idea behind the AVPN's minimal, minimalist pizza is that the consortium for the protection of the San Marzano tomato is to preserve an important heritage and protect a brand. In that regard, they seem to have succeeded. Not satisfied with obtaining DOP status in 1997, the group also sought and won recognition from the UN for Pizziolo, the art of traditional pizza making, joining Azerbaijani's carpet weaving and the Armenian performance of Daredevils of Sassoon on the list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity. I'm surprised that the cholera isn't also a standard <laughs> that has to be part of the pizza. Also, what I love though is like he makes note. He's like, so I never passed it. Uh, I never made it past the A's. Sue me, because the other two places that he looks at this huge list of intangible cultural heritage of humanity, he's like, he's got to the A's. It's a long list, guys. A really long list. But yeah, I mean, he chose so, some yeah. really cool ones: Azerbaijan <laughs> with their carpet weaving, and then Arme yeah, Armenia did, for did, dance. Yes, did take me a second to um, Azerbaijan me that out of my face. I don't read. But yeah, so it says no one would argue that maintaining one's cultural and culinary he heritage isn't important. But the flip side of the pie is that Naples, in the determination to preserve some version of the past, has made itself into a living fossil of pizza to the extent that the AVPN recognizes only two varieties, the cheeseless marinara with only tomato sauce and oregano, which made its debut in 1734. And the margarita around since at least 1853 with, with the story of Margarita, the, the queen. So we apparently no should cheese. have made a pizza that had no cheese. They can take that no cheese pizza <laughs> sprinkled with oregano and shove it directly into their pie hole, their other pie hole. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of the history of pizza. So as uh, up until this point, so pizza doesn't necessarily make its way out of Naples, much like the problem with mozzarella, right? It doesn't, it travels, but only so far, right? It is a takeout food, but you can't take it out to Germany. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't hold up, especially with it being very wet, I'm sure. And because yeah, that's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
Also, I mean, you still have kind of the issues with tomatoes, right? First, mozzarella is not coming out in, into the larger areas of the world because of refrigeration. Tomatoes are still something that is considered a poor person food. So it's not something that's going to be like, hell yeah, put that on some fucking bread for us, please. And on top of that, it's a poor person cuisine, even in Naples. So you have, you know, feet literally on the ground for this food. And because of that, it kind of isolates it to Naples and, you know, Ital like Italy slightly broader, but not a whole lot. So it's not until the 1900s that you start to see global consumption of pizza take place. And that is where you have to pick back up because that takes place in the United States with Italian immigrants. So Fantabulous. that's where we will pick up for part time. two. For part yeah. two. I mean, let's maybe tell them what pizzas we made and then we'll hold off until part two to tell them what we liked. Yes. Um, so we made primarily cheese pizzas. Like yes. I think two of them were straight up just cheese pizza. Three of one them. of them was three of them. We three made, of them. Yeah. Because we made the one that was like closer to the Aeneid that had mm -hmm. figs and goat cheese. Yeah, so I made it, we started with like the fermented pizza dough and we used the same pizza dough for all recipes. Yep. And which may or may not have been slightly different in Aeneid's time because of the use of yeast, but yeah, even still. So that had, I did olive oil, goat cheese, figs, and pears, and then a little bit of cinnamon and some black pepper. And a drizzle and, of honey. And a drizzle of honey once it came out and topped it with... uh pomegranate seeds so it was quite it was a very decadent pizza i don't know if that's exactly what Aeneid would have had because the the ingredients seem really fancy to us now you're like oh figs and honey and right but, but like, a lot of these would have been things that he could forage too oh yeah these are these are staple ingredients that the honey maybe not um as easily to come by but um, maybe also yes because honey was everywhere in the ancient world the things that makes it a decadent pizza is not those ingredients it was the pepper and the cinnamon cinnamon specifically and uh so we really could have omitted the frankly i don't think the cinnamon added anything to it either. It, it, it didn't really so i it's like omitting... if you put it's like the ancient equivalent of gold leafing your pizza yeah kind of i mean you had a little bit of something there but i don't think it enhanced anything no so it was yeah, very I mean, good it was, oh my God, it's so delicious. I want to make more. But yeah, it was very good. And yeah, it was just interesting because for us, it was like, oh, dates and the honey and the goat cheese is what made it kind of this like fancy, expensive fancy. flatbread where in the ancient world, it's just the pepper and the and the cinnamon. So holy shit, seasonings. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we made that one, which is supposed to be more of the ancient style. Then we made what we saw to be a traditional Neapolitan pizza. With buffalo mozzarella and yep. a pizza sauce that got pulled. Uh, the sauce that we used for the sauced pizzas and the actual fermented dough recipe both came from America's Test Kitchen, their Mediterranean cookbook. It, I love it for all sorts of things. The next Shabbat dinner we do at your place, I'm probably going to bring it with me and Beautiful. we'll do something out of there. Beautiful. Uh, that sauce was also not cooked. But we did mm -hmm. take out some of the the juice. So it, it was the same thing that we did with the marinara from the marinara episode. So we extracted some of the um, the juice the from that, the liquid from it. And so created probably a drier pizza than what you're getting in Naples if it's just straight crushed 
tomatoes with all of the uh, the moisture in there. And then we had two kind of American versions. Yeah. So we had like one that was like a nicer mozzarella and then one that was like your just like pre-shredded yeah. low moisture in a bag. Yep. Yeah. And pizza the, blend. Pizza blend. Pizza blend. Yeah. In parentheses. And then the one that's like the quote nicer um, mozzarella is like, you know, the the ball mozzarella that you get that has that like sort of string cheesy aspect. Yeah. To it. Not the not the actual nice fresh mozzarella. No. That's like in the brine. No, this was like no, the, no, no. the sealed stuff. Mm-hmm. That's like a giant wedge of string cheese. Yeah. And then you and then you um you have to shred it. Bless well, you. Thank you. I will say one of the things that I love and I want to share with our audience is that if you are shredding that kind of mozzarella, and I think I told you this, that one hack to do it a little bit easier is to put it in the freezer for like, I don't know, 10 to 20 minutes before you shred it. It doesn't freeze it, but it makes it cold enough to where it sort of holds form as you are shredding. So it doesn't like sort of uh, break under the pressure of your hand as you're shredding and it's lovely and kind of keeps the- the, like the shredded like shape of the shredding so that was that's fun it's a little like a little culinary. fact from sam to the audience yeah yeah it's a little like you know chef's sort of back a house uh trick to shredding pizza shredding pizza shredding mozzarella <laughs> uh yeah so we'll leave there right we have not gotten to the united states we've not gotten to pizza that we would necessarily eat or recognize new york pizza doesn't exist yet deep dish is certainly not fucking even close to being on the menu unless you count neapolitan as being wet and synonymous to pizza casserole <laughs> listen i'm going to say something and it it's probably going to divide quite a bit of our american audience which is pretty much all of them at this point mm-hmm. um not all of them we have belgian turkey and italian listeners well there you go um as far as american pizzas go I've had Chicago deep dish and I have had actual no shit New York pizza and pretty much everything in between because I love pizza. I mean, (laughs) love pizza. Like it's stupid and all of it's good. Do I think that like lasagna on a bread, which is Chicago style necessarily counts as a pizza? I have to use a fork and knife for it, but like, it's also not bad. Isn't and it I know there's provolone this huge and not mozzarella? I actually need to check on that because I don't remember because I haven't had Chicago style in a long time. Well, that's something to save for next episode. I like this. I'm really yeah. excited because I I adore pizza. And Sam, I know you're a little pizzaed out. With I'm only pizza but... out because it's like it, we're a family of four and we have busy nights. And my husband's a fucking monster when it comes to like what he likes to eat. And so pizza just becomes a state. Like it's every Tuesday night. He orders pizza because I have a night class thing that I do. And the really absurd part of that is that that night class serves pizza to the students for dinner. (laughs) So he's like, oh, well, like, I'll just, I'll just order pizza when you're not in the house. And then like me and the kids can eat the pizza and like, you can have whatever you want. And I'm like, I'm just being served more fucking pizza, but it's kosher. So. Well, there's that. Yeah. There's that. Next time we meet you all, it will be for the second half. This is our first two-parter, but it will be the second half of pizza. And then I think we're probably going to go on a little bit of a break. Holidays are coming up. 
travel is happening and we need to start getting some recordings in the bank so that I can figure out a much more regular schedule for you all. So it's not just when are they posting, they'll hopefully get into a, a, a regular where we can start posting regularly. And, but that takes a little bit of work, right? We're seven episodes in and we've got a little bit more of an idea of how long these things take, how much research takes, script writing, editing, and then life. So yeah. yeah, so we'll take a little bit of a break. We will be working, but you will have a break from us for a little bit after the next episode. But I think I'm going to still be putting out um, Atheist and a Jew. So I'm working on episode one. I'm finishing up the edits on episode one. So that will come out early for Matt because he's our Patreon. And then the rest <laughs> of you will gain access to that. And it's a fun episode. We talk about uh, who we are and wh- our, how our what our relationship from- with God is. Um, Okay, so next time we will talk about pizza and we will hopefully cut all of this stuff out. Um, Until then, stay hungry for history. History Between Bites is written, produced, and performed by Samantha Nelson and Bernie Mills. Music is by Michelle Mountain. Find us on Instagram at History Between Bites Pod and Facebook at History Between Bites. Coming soon is Hearth or Table, a new YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to never miss an episode and leave a review or rate us wherever you get your podcasts. History Between Bites is a product of History Between Bites LLC, all rights reserved 2023.